0: Turn in your Bibles this morning. We have two passages that we're going to be looking at. The first is in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And then you can put your finger there and turn over to Hebrews, chapter 11. And we'll be looking at verse 13 through 16. First off, Gospel of John, chapter 14. Verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, has prepared them a city. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, what language could we borrow to thank you for the immense treasure of the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, to have it, to have it in our possession and in our language where we can read and know the things freely given to us by God. We pray that this day you would bless that word and cause it to fall like seed on good ground and bring forth much fruit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. J.C. Ryle when he wrote about heaven, said it well. He said, when men talk about heaven, they're talking about something that they don't know what they're talking about. My friends, my desire this morning is to change that sad but common condition. Now, granted... There are going to be many things about heaven that we do not know and do not understand and cannot understand. That is why, as I've often said, the scriptures frequently speak of what heaven is not rather than what it is. Because if, if God told us what it was going to be, we wouldn't have any idea what he was talking about. It's going to be so far beyond our comprehension that the scripture often says no more sin no more suffering no more death these are the types of things we can identify with but when it speaks about heaven itself we can't always understand however we can joyfully seek to know Everything God has been pleased to reveal to us about heaven in his word. He has given us the scriptures to describe this place where we hoped to be with him. This morning we're focusing upon this this picture of heaven as the Father's house. Tonight we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, where the apostle talks about being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then in Philippians 1, Paul describes his desire to depart and be with Christ. And we'll look at that Lord's day next, Lord willing. And then in the evening next week, we're going to be looking at a very... uh, various passages from the book of revelation what is heaven like what does the scripture tell us about what heaven is like and what are we going to do there are we going to spend eternity uh, playing our harps and singing songs or what are we going to do and so all of these things lord willing we will consider in the coming days now to say that there is a wide variety of views on the subject of heaven would be a colossal understatement. The fact is, all kinds of people speak of heaven, but sadly, they show that they really don't understand what they're talking about. What really surprised me was how few books there are about heaven. I don't mean the ones that are full of all kinds of speculation. I'm talking about based on the doctrines taught in Scripture. Even theologians that normally are very helpful when it comes to understanding the teaching of Scripture... Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology gives one paragraph to a discussion of heaven. R.L. Dabney, one of my favorite theologians and preachers, in his systematic uh, theology gives a page and a half to the subject. And then the real surprise came when I began to search throughout the writings of the Puritans. The Puritans preached on pretty much everything in the Bible. And I found that most of the Puritan writers had one to three sermons on the topic. There are a few exceptions. John Flavel wrote a whole book called The Fountain of Life in which he focuses much upon that. Jonathan Edwards' Heaven is a World of Love. That's a clue about giveaway books, but later. Um, There are exceptions to those, but by far very few preachers and writers deal extensively with the subject of heaven. And therefore... In the next two weeks, we are going to be looking rather extensively at what the Bible has to say about the subject of heaven. Where is heaven? What is it going to be like? Who can expect to go there? And perhaps most important of all is what effect should these biblical truths have upon my life and your life today? So these, Lord willing, are some of the questions that we're going to be looking at. I want us to begin with a foundational principle, heaven, cultivating a biblical perspective. So how often do you think about heaven? Have you thought about heaven in the last week, maybe the last two weeks, the last month, much about it in the last year? And when you think about it, what do you think about? Do you think about it's going to be a day when we see our loved ones who have gone before us? Do you think that it's going to be a day in which we will be uh, absent of the pain and difficulties and hardships that we encounter. My friends, do you have a confident hope as we read in that question and answer 37 and 38 that you are going to be immediately at death passing into glory? That at the resurrection you are going to be raised up and acquitted, pronounced not guilty on the judgment day. Do you really have a hope? Do you long for that day when you are going to be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God? all eternity is that what goes through your mind when you think of heaven what does heaven mean to you i expect that quite a number of you have probably seen the video american gospel or maybe you've seen other clips on the internet of Ray Comfort going out onto the streets of New York or wherever and asking people questions about God and about the Bible and about the Christian faith. He asks questions like, do you think you're a good person? Do you know how many people respond to that question and say, yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And then, of course, he asked them, have you ever told a lie? The popular response is, well, of course, but that's only normal. I mean, I'm human. It's to be expected. Now, if you were to ask these people about heaven, if they believe in heaven at all, they surely believe That they will be there in the end. That that is where they are going. But my friends, it doesn't take a a, a rocket scientist to figure out that their reasons for believing they're going to heaven are not founded on the word of God. They are not founded on biblical truth by far. The usual idea is, well, my good works hopefully will outweigh my bad works and therefore God will let me in. That's the way people think. Very common expression in our days. Remember those those tremendous words of, of David Dixon when he says, I've made a heap of my good works. And a heap of my bad works. And I fled them both to Jesus. Because it's not about us. It's not about our good works or our bad works. Others think they're going to heaven because heaven is where this kind old man lives upstairs. Very flippant view of God and of heaven. And since he's a God of love, he's not going to condemn anyone to hell. He's going to welcome us into heaven. Still others believe that heaven is just another form of reincarnation. And others think that heaven is something they've seen on TV Or maybe read a story in Reader's Digest about someone who died on the operating table and saw a bright light. It was so warm and soothing. And then they came back to life. And John MacArthur in, in his book on the glory of heaven goes into great detail discussing Mary Edie and her book Embracing the Light because it is this deathbed experience that she describes. And we don't have time to turn there, but he, he talks about the fact that she, she writes and says, I saw this bright light, and, and then I saw another light, and I realized that light was me. And the two lights just blended together. That, my friends, is not Biblical, As a matter of fact, it completely contrary to what the scriptures teach. Now there's all kinds, there are untold numbers of unbiblical, sentimental reasons for believing you will go to heaven. I think one of the most common encounters that I've had with people is to ask them if they believe in God. And do they believe in heaven? And do they think they'll be there? And I had one gentleman tell me, he says, well, I accepted the Lord when I was nine. I haven't been in church since. I'm living with my girlfriend in open rebellion to God's commandments. But don't misunderstand, I'm saved. And I'm going to heaven. A very, very popular TV and radio personality, very well known preacher from Atlanta, says that people who accept the Lord when they're young but don't live for him for the rest of their lives are going to be those that are cast into outer darkness, which is the outskirts of heaven that they're going to be there. They're not going to enjoy the same pleasures and fellowship with God that obedient Christians will, but they'll be in heaven because they accepted Jesus. My friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. If you want to... Enjoy and experience the kind of comfort and power and life changing grace that heaven should produce in you. You must begin to develop and cultivate a biblical perspective. When God is pleased to reveal, Heaven and the truths about heaven. He does so in a very clear, decisive, powerful, life-changing way. It's the kind of thing that when you understand what heaven is, it gives peace to your troubled souls. Isn't that what Jesus does in John 14? He is getting ready to die to be resurrected and to ascend into heaven, and the disciples are going to be very troubled by that. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, the thought of heaven a thought of the glory that God is there and you will be there too should comfort your troubled souls. When the Bible is our guide, when the Bible is what guides our thinking, my friends, all carnal, all flippant concepts and thoughts are going to disappear As a matter of fact, we could say that every single time the veil between this world and the next is drawn back and we get a glimpse of eternity. you know what we see? One thing. One thing. And that's the majesty and the glory of God Almighty. Never is it about us. The biblical pictures of heaven are always about God. Think of Isaiah and his vision of the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. It's not about Isaiah. It's not even about the cherubim and the seraphim. They fall on their faces and cover them with their wings because the glory, because the majesty of God is so great, they can't bear the sight. What happens in the book of Revelation in chapter 1 when John is suffering for the cause of Christ, he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, worshiping God. And I heard a voice behind me and I turned around and there was the one who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the one who was, who is, and who is to come. I am the one who has died for the sins of my people. And what does John do? Does he walk up and shake Jesus' hand and say, oh, it's so good to be here? No, he falls on his face and he worships Christ because the glory of God is what is seen at that moment. When we read of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, he says, I knew a man once was caught up into the third heaven. We'll hear about that tonight. And I heard things that I am not permitted to speak about. My friends, there will be no concept of man when you see the biblical pictures of heaven. You are not going to see your mother's smiling face or your favorite puppy, when you see heaven, it will all be about the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Cultivate a biblical perspective. Secondly, heaven, and considering the biblical imagery, Now, obviously, we've already indicated that heaven means different things to different people. Sometimes people will describe their favorite vacation spot as a little piece of heaven on earth. I've even heard people describe their favorite dessert as being heavenly Now, I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud, but what I want us to realize is that holding these kind of ideas and relating even the highest and the best pleasures you have ever known on earth and trying to equate or or make those pleasures equal to heaven will never help you. Grasp, it will never help you to think adequately of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the heavens that are yet to come. However, there are some images which God Himself has used to portray aspects of heaven and guide our thinking on them. We're going to look at two examples this morning. The one we find in John 14, as Jesus describes heaven as the Father's house. And then from Hebrews 11, verse 13 and following, we have this description of a better country, a heavenly country, a city made by God, not by man. Let's look first of all at John 14, the way Jesus describes heaven as the Father's house. What do you think of when you think of your own house? Not my house, your house. Your house is where you live. My house is where I live. The Father's house is the house where God lives. It is the place where God is. Jesus goes on and he says, In my Father's house, the the ESV says many rooms, New King James says many mansions. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't been to very many mansions. I've been to what probably could be referred to as a mansion in the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina. Do you know that the Biltmore House has 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, and 65 fireplaces and 175 other rooms just for entertainment. That's a mansion. What we are thinking about here, we have to be pretty careful with because is Jesus telling us each of us then are going to have our own palace? We're going to enjoy living in our own. Mansion Well, I don't think that's the point here. What Jesus is trying to communicate to us in language that we can associate and understand, is that He is preparing a place for us. And that place, my friends, is going to be immeasurably beyond. Everything we can imagine. A house with many more houses inside it. It's going to be far greater than anything we can imagine. But don't miss the key thought here. Because the key thought is not the mansion. The key thought is that you will be with me where I am. That's the thrust of what Jesus is saying. This place that I am preparing, you are going to be with me. That's the focal point. And a similar image we find in Hebrews. Hebrews. Image here as the writer of Hebrews is describing the lifestyle of these all died in faith. Who is he referring to? He's referring to Abel. He's referring to Enoch. He's referring to Noah. He's referring to Abraham and to Sarah. And he says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the promises. My friends, you realize that God made extraordinary promises to each and every one of these, but particularly to Abraham. It was the promise of the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was the promise of, of God was going to make him great among the nations. There's a promise of descendants like the stars of the heavens. And yet, that was not what they longed for. What stands out about this passage in Hebrews 11 is that they died in faith, not having received the promises, but seeing them afar off. And he says, they made it clear, they desired a better country, a heavenly country. In other words, they said, above all else, what we really long for is this other country, this better country, this heavenly country this city that God was making for them. And we're told that because of that faith that longed for the heavenly country, God was not ashamed to be called their God. You see the connection? The point here is not what they didn't have. It's what they longed to have. What they longed to have was a relationship with God. That was the mother promise. Above all other promises, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, do you realize that same promise is right now, today? When we read the promises of the new covenant in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, we hear that same language. God will be their God and they will be his people. We even hear that language in Revelation 21 and the new heavens and the new earth. From beginning to end, this is the quintessential expression of God's goodness I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is what we see in the lives of these in Hebrews 11. Abraham desired heaven and he lived his life looking for it, longing for it. He was like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who pressed through all kinds of trials and difficulties and hardships and opposition because his heart was set on coming to the celestial city. He longed for that celestial city. My friends, let me ask you, is that the way You think of heaven. I long for it. I want to be there. Not because I'm going to walk on streets of gold or I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones. You will be reunited with your loved ones. And we'll talk about that later. But the main focus is I want to be there because I will be God's child and he will be my father. I will be with Christ and that is the hunger, that is the thirst, that is the longing of my soul above all else. One writer put it this way. He says, perhaps one of the reasons We do not long for heaven the way Abraham did. It's because we don't think of heaven in the terms that Abraham did. We don't long for it so that we can be with Christ. The point of both of these passages, I believe, is quite telling. And very simply put, it's this. This world, no matter how good your life might be in it, is not your home. And if we're going to cultivate that biblical perspective, and if we're going to think in the terms of Scripture, if we're going to, like these in Hebrews 11, be as pilgrims and strangers in the land... We have got to stop acting like this world is where we belong. And this world is what we really enjoy. We need to set our sights on heaven. Well, lastly, heaven and pursuing the biblical path that leads there. Brothers and sisters, if you want that kind of lively, confident expectation that when you die, you are going to pass into glory, that you are going to be made perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God to all eternity, you must start cultivating a biblical perspective. And you must start thinking of heaven in the way the Bible speaks of it, not the way you hear in in popular culture today. But there's one more thing that is absolutely necessary. You must pursue it, heaven, in the way that Jesus tells you to pursue it. It's his heaven. It belongs to him. And he sets the terms. And he sets the conditions. And he tells us the way to go to heaven. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know your Bibles, you know that the Lord Jesus Christ was not one to mince words. And he was certainly not one to mince words when it comes to the things of God, to the way of salvation and to the matter of eternal life. And that is certainly true here. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that you may be with me where I am. And Thomas says, um, Lord, we don't, where are you going? We don't, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to get there? I think this is a genuine question. He's a little confused. He doesn't quite get it. And Jesus responds in John 14 in verse 6. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man comes to the Father, comes to God, except by me by faith in me by trusting and committing yourself to me this is what Jesus says and my friends it just doesn't get any simpler and clearer than this no man comes to the father but by me here's the problem We have a lot, and I mean a lot, of religious leaders that are telling you there are many ways to God. Even Billy Graham, America's evangelist, as he drew near the end of his life, said, Jews and Muslims who've never heard the name of Jesus will be in heaven. Pope Francis recently said, Muslims, Mormons, and all other religions, we all worship the same God. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's not what Jesus said. I don't know if they have a different Bible than I have. But Jesus says, I am the way. The way. The only way. I am the truth. Everything else is a lie. I am the life. Everything else will lead to death. What Jesus said is apart from me, apart from believing in me, as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, there is no hope of salvation and certainly no hope of entering into heaven. Now notice that these words about Christ coming and Christ saying you can only come to God is in the context of the Father's house. It's in the context of the place he's preparing and from which he will come and receive us unto himself. That is what Jesus is talking about and there is no other way that leads to heaven other than putting your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Our knowledge, our joy, our understanding of heaven starts here. Because if you do not yet believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, no amount of books that you read, no amount of prayers that you pray, no amount of works, good or bad, that you do will ever bring you peace or the assurance that heaven will be your eternal home. It's interesting the way Octavius Winslow speaks of heaven and of the role of faith in our enjoyment of that. These are his words. Faith is like a spiritual spy. He's making reference to the spies that went into the promised land and came back with large fruits of its produce. And he says, faith is like a spiritual spy that goes deep into our promised land and brings out clusters of the fruit that awaits us there. My friends, heaven is our eternal home if we're trusting in Christ. But you don't have to wait till eternity to experience some of its joys, some of its glory, some of its beauty, right now, by faith, you can penetrate that land and you can take hold of the fruit of the glories of heaven and bring them home today. I pray that God will help us to understand the sheer magnitude, the glories of heaven. This is not some silly trinket or concept that we have. This is real. This is glorious. This is everlasting life in Jesus Christ. God draw each of us to the gates of heaven by the way that He has commanded faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you and humble ourselves, confessing that not one of us is worthy to enter into the glories of heaven. But how we rejoice and thank you that you have not only made known the way to heaven through Christ, but by your spirit, you have drawn countless numbers to him in faith and repentance. Lord, we bless you. We bless you for the glorious and blessed hope that we have of that day when we will be with you forever and ever. And if there is anyone here who does not have that hope, oh Lord, open their eyes, stir their hearts, and draw them to life eternal through Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.